Welcome everyone to the in-house roundhouse. My name's Mark Enriquez. I'm a construction and business litigator uh, in the Charlotte office of Womble Bond Dickinson. Uh, we are recording today at, in Austin, Texas at the 2018 Association of Corporate Counsel event. We've recorded several podcasts here. I encourage listeners to go back and listen to those. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of interesting topics. We have an uh, interesting guest here this afternoon, Emily Vijay Kurthy. Yes, good um, job. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've been practicing that for several hours. Uh, thank you. Is a uh, the senior attorney and assistant compliance manager at Black and Beach. Thank you for joining us, Emily. Thank you. Uh, we also have Joe Tyrone, one of our my partners, who does a lot of work and heads up our energy practice. Joe, I'm glad you could join us. Glad to be here. Great. So we're going to talk today some about a topic that is of great interest to some and others may know very little about, which is some cross-border due diligence issues and due diligence involving third parties. Before we jump right into that, Emily, maybe you can tell us a little more about Black & Veatch. I, I think of them as an engineering and construction firm. When I went to their website, it looks like they're actually doing a lot, even more, more than that. And uh, I was shocked to see that you've now got, I think it was over 10,000 professionals in 100 countries. So that's a that's a truly multinational firm. But tell our listeners a little bit. They may not know the scope of uh, Black & Veatch. Sure. So um, Black & Veatch is located in Overland Park, Kansas. That's where our global headquarters is. And we do work all over the world, primarily engineering and construction in infrastructure projects. We focus on power, oil and gas, telecom, and water projects. So um, it's a really interesting variety of work. Um, we also have gotten into electric vehicle charging, which I think is really cool. We've also been doing um, battery storage projects. Um, oh. And then we've also been getting into smart cities work, which I think is a really exciting oh, wow. venture. So um, we're really trying to grow uh, with the economy and with technology, and um, we're doing it all over the world. That's terrific. Thanks. Um, and tell us a little bit about your position there. I, I've got your job title, but what, kind of what are you responsible for and where do you fit in sure. organizationally? Sure. So I um, am the assistant compliance manager. I report to the chief compliance manager. The two of us, along with a paralegal based in Singapore, run our um, ethics and compliance program. And essentially, we're making sure that we don't violate any anti-bribery or anti-corruption laws, policies that are across the world. Um, we use the UK Bribery Act out of the United Kingdom as our guidepost law. And um, we use that to form a basis of what a good company does to ensure that employees and business partners are acting in a good way and not bribing people. <laughs> gotcha. You know, it's interesting. One of the other podcasts we recorded here at the conference was talking about the current role of compliance programs. And I, I learned for the first time that ethics and compliance is now the, the more popular terminology. So it's interesting you called it ethics and, and compliance there. Yes. Was that a, is that a fairly recent name change or have they always had it as ethics and compliance? Yeah. And actually it's the ethics and compliance management program. But yeah, management it's program. always, okay. we've been 
doing it for several years and that's what it's been called gotcha. yeah and are you part of i have to ask because i asked our other panelists where compliance fits in structurally are you under the legal department yes yes my understanding is that that's typical but there's some thought papers around oh, it yeah. being separate reporting directly to the board or having some other kind of reporting structure right and that is definitely the case there are two different ways of doing it but yeah we report up through the general counsel gotcha yeah great so you're doing a panel, I think, later today on this issue of due diligence and cross-border transactions and third parties. For some of our listeners that may begin to get nervous when they hear the word <laughs> cross-border, let, let's just let's break that down a little bit and talk about what kind of transactions are you talking about that our listeners may need to, you know, just to set the stage for some of the guidance we're going to provide here. Sure. So our panel is primarily focusing on relationships with business partners. This focuses on any company from vendors to clients to joint venture partners to vendors that interface with government entities to local representatives and agents. So it's basically any kind of company that you would have a relationship with. Okay. So if Black & Beach is doing an energy project somewhere, whoever that energy company is might be a third party for purposes of thinking about diligence. Exactly. Or if you're acquiring some smaller company, you're talking about not just that company, but some of their customers, clients, other key contacts. Yes, yes. Um, in some cases, but really what, what I'm focusing on are companies that we are working with on a daily basis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so what would prompt you to do due diligence on those companies? Well, we perform due diligence on virtually every company that we work with. And we do this because most compliance laws or anti-bribery laws really, they don't make you do it, but they encourage you to do it. All right. That's good. I see Joe nodding. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a litigator. So, you know, I, I spend my time, uh, you know, in state and federal court, but I don't, I don't, I know what due diligence is from handling a few issues that have arisen from due diligence, but this is, so you're saying as part of your regular compliance, you have to do some investigation onto these clients and other third parties. That's just part of the regular process of doing business. Sure. And it's also a good way to manage risk. All right. Yeah. So I'd say those are both reasons why we do it. I'd be interested to see where your compliance efforts work in the supply chain, because yes. that's where I'm seeing a lot oh, yeah. of a lot of the compliance work in these overseas projects. You know, you're sourcing and you've got to diligence the entire supply chain. Exactly. And that's a lot of work. And it's uh, it's obviously important, but I'd love to hear your perspective. Sure. So we work very, very close with our sourcing um, group. We perform due diligence on all of our suppliers. We make sure that they aren't sanctioned. That's for all companies in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. For companies that are based outside of the U.S., we also do a reputational screening to make sure that there's nothing that would cause us concern to, um, about moving forward with them. That's just a way to ensure that we are working with companies that meet our core values and 
that aren't going to get us in trouble at a later date. In most companies, we do end up working with, but, you know, we want to know if something has come up so we can talk with them and say, hey, what happened here? What have you done to fix it? And um, what can we do to make sure that our relationship is okay? Gotcha. Is that screening process something that's run by the compliance manager so that you and your team work yes. on that? Yeah, we we used to rely a lot on the sourcing department, but now we've taken that within our purview. Now, uh, what I see also with a lot of my clients in a similar space is it's both the the compliance due diligence, but also there's a training aspect of it that the um, ethics and compliance group actively supports and works on. Is, is that how Black & Veatch handles it as well? Yeah, so we do training every year online training that we develop in-house, and I'm actually in the thick of it right now, for all of our employees, all 10,000 across the world. And it's it's fun, and and I, I mean that to some extent. <laughs> you just meet individually with all 10,000. No, no. That's, that's easy, right? Just bring them in for an hour each. You'll be done in a few years. No, I wish. Um, <laughs> No, we have to develop a an online training program, and we have to make sure that the training actually makes sense to people that are from many different places, and that we don't have... I mean, we want it to be interesting, and we try to include humor, but you have to make sure that the humor that you include doesn't offend someone, say, we, you know, we have a big office in China you know, you don't want something offensive. So we really do try to make it fun and inclusive. And we're, you know, we, we try to translate for um, a few languages of the big offices that we're in. So it's a big undertaking, but it's necessary and it's required by the UK Bribery Act and by um, other laws of other countries where we do business. Gotcha. Are there particular challenges associated with some of this due diligence on an international cross-border basis that might not be present if you were just looking at a U.S. supplier? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Tell me a little bit about some of those, why it's harder, what some of the cross-border challenges are. Well, so if you're a U.S. company, you don't have to worry about... If you're just doing work in the U.S., you don't have to worry about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I mean, if you're not touching anything globally and you're not working with anyone outside of the U.S., you don't have to worry about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. You don't have to worry about the U.K. Bribery Act. You don't have to worry about the law that Brazil recently passed, you know. And so in our presentation today, we talk about several countries and their specific laws. So, um, you know, you have to think about each country that you're doing business in, what law applies. I mean, if you follow the FCPA and the UK Bribery Act, you're pretty much going to meet most of the requirements for most of the places in the world. So but there's been a shift, right, that the FCPA is just going by FCPA is maybe not enough. Anymore, right. Right. What, what was the shift and in, in what, what are those kind of uh, additional levels of, of due diligence that, that you're seeing being necessary? So the FCPA 
doesn't prevent bribing a non-government official. The UK Bribery Act does. So that's why we follow the UK Bribery Act. Um, the UK Bribery Act also requires training. The UK Bribery Act also says that you can't um, give facilitation payments to try to hurry up something you're doing ordinarily in the course of business, like trying to get something through customs. A facilitation payment would be, you know, giving something under the table to make something go through customs faster. Again, that's why we follow the UK Bribery Act. We have business operations in the UK, but they wrote the UK Bribery Act very, very expansively so that if you even touch the UK, it applies to you. Okay. If these kinds of extra transactional dealings are so common that, and, and you know, some of the places that organizations are operating, especially when in developing areas where you're trying to kind of really, you're maybe breaking some very new ground, if it's that common and such a, an issue, how does a company like yours who wants to keep things above board, how do you get stuff done? and stay above board. Like, what's the, what advice would you give to folks you know, who uh, maybe are just starting in a position like yours and they're like, listen, we, in order to get you know, the, the construction company to start working, we've got to grease the wheels and you're saying we can't do that. What's the, how, do you, how do you address it? Well, that's a great question and sometimes it can be difficult. But you just have to say, this is the law, and if we break it, we could be paying serious fines. And then you just keep... So, I think that in a lot of these countries, they understand that if you are a company based out of the U.S., the U.K., or other countries where these laws have been implemented, that you have to follow these rules. And so maybe they're a little bit more understanding and we found that. So if you're going through customs in a developing country where bribery is more of a concern, they'll let your stuff through. And then if there's someone from that country behind you, they'll expect a payment. And we've seen that. Wow. So I think it just happens. I also think that you just have to keep doing it over and over and keep training your employees, keep discussing with them and you know we've had to do this just keep letting them know that this is how it is and we don't want the DOJ or the serious frauds office knocking at our door and having a huge investigation that would affect us both monetarily and affect our reputation are there impact investing type of, of alternatives uh, the situations? Is, is that something that uh, has been explored uh, when you run into these situations where you've got folks who are going to run up, you know, we're looking for, you know, the wheels to be greased. Are there companies, is there a way to say, okay, well, we're not going to pay you a bribe. That's ridiculous. But, you know, we understand that, you know, your uh, water infrastructure is maybe not what it should be or uh, the school system is, you know, and so we can look at partnering with you to help there. Is, is that something that's that would be, that could that that kind of falls close to the line of yeah. not okay. <laughs> so, 
you uh, advise against yes, that. I, Yes, our listeners can't see your face, uh, Emily, but it is a, yes, it's not a, you're not reacting positively to the idea of saying, well, we can't directly bribe you, but we'll build a school. Yeah, I mean, because a charitable donation is, you can, you can bribe by giving a charitable donation. So I think you'd have to be really, really careful about that. (laughs) I'm not sure impact investment opportunity is what I would <laughs> Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Emily, Emily has uh, uh, just decided that I would be a terrible uh, client for her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could discuss and I'll, the proper way to do things. <laughs> I'm curious, just for changing gears a little bit, you brought up Brazil before mm-hmm. and their recent troubles over the last couple of years were every major construction infrastructure company was involved in some way or another. Mm-hmm. How did you manage that? Because I, I, you must have worked with Odebrecht or Brecht Game. I mean, it must have been a tremendous amount of work. Fortunately, we haven't done work in Brazil in a long time. <laughs> we were fortunately not impacted. Our major operations in South America are in Chile, which I'm very glad because Chile is actually a very easy place to do business because they manage not to have a lot of corruption there. I was there actually in Chile earlier this year and was just, um, I had no idea that they really do keep most projects above board and don't have any issues like the rest of (laughs) South America. But, you know, we have looked at doing work in Brazil and we've had to be very, very careful about how we approach it. We've had to really dig deep into those potential relationships through due diligence. And that has included, so, you know, I said earlier, for most vendors, we just do a background check or deny parties screening. But in those cases, we have a form that we would have them fill out where they would represent they wouldn't commit any kind of bribery or corruption. We would ask for more information about their finances and about who their directors and key employees are so we could do additional due diligence. We'd probably do further in-depth boots on the ground due diligence. We'd do interviews, we'd train them. We might work with them to complete a project-specific compliance program. So depending on the risk and depending on the location and depending on our relationship, we make different types of due diligence. I'd echo your uh, your thoughts about Chile. I was there about nine months ago on about a 10-day diligence trip with a client looking at a series of portfolio of renewables projects and a very very good place to do business. Yeah, I was just, you know, in Santiago is just great. So That's a good tip, listeners. You know, yeah. if you're thinking of think international Chile sounds like a good place to be. Really? <laughs> what what about I, I'm thinking of some of our guests and some of our listeners are smaller shops where they may not even have a full-time dedicated compliance person that compliance person's wearing another hat you know they're they're vp of sales and compliance or they're in the legal department and have a compliance role you know i'm wondering how do they go about implementing the kind of compliance you're describing because i imagine it's more than simply google searching the vendor to see you know what's happening you've got to have a more rigorous process so 
do they outsource it? I'm just, again, this, this comes from a litigator that doesn't do as much diligence. I'm trying to get an understanding of, this seems like a huge task, right? To make sure that the folks you're buying from are, are staying out of trouble and make sure your own folks are, are following the rules they're supposed to follow. I've seen a number of smaller companies, still large companies, but smaller than Black and & Veatch, and they go about it both with third-party vendors. There's a number of security vendors that'll do it that both have operations on the ground in different countries. Then they also are more, I don't want to say aggressive, but they'll go forward with this sort of uh, rep letter and disclosure documents that uh, that Emily was talking about. Uh, it's almost like a banking KYC, know your customer type okay. disclosure that you ask for the people to fill out, really because they don't have the people to, to do it. So they're a little bit more preemptive on those sort of disclosures just to get things going. Right. You're, you're trying to you know shift that burden to them to say, hey, you've got to tell me. Yeah, that, that's definitely what I've seen as well. There are a lot of vendors out there that do this and can provide services. And I mean, we use vendors to do our background checks. We have two separate vendors, um, one for denied parties and one for our enhanced background checks. And then another, actually, to do our boots-on-the-ground background checks. So there are plenty. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there that can help. But, I mean, that's at a cost, of course. So. And you really can't uh, minimize the having people on the ground that you trust, that respect and know your values that can help with this. And that, that's agree. a very important part of it. Right. And so at Black & Veatch... Um, we have local lawyers that are like our regional compliance managers, and we have local business professionals in the business units, and we have local and uh, regional professionals that are given the opportunity to serve as compliance officers. So we have, you know, business unit buy-in, and they can also. Um, help with any questions and bring it to us, of course, if it's a complicated issue. I've also seen where companies say they have a, you know, a pump manufacturer that they used and worked with for 20 years in a location, uh, and they've just been a source of product, and they're going into that market. They've got an existing relationship with this company. They understand the way that the company does business and the rules. And they value their judgment of people on the ground, and, and you know you value those relationships and use those as your boots on the ground initially in order to move forward. Just because you've got someone that you know and trust that values doing business with you, so they're not going to risk that to let somebody do something shady. Exactly. Are, are most of the decisions kind of yes, no, meaning this is a supplier we will use and this is we won't? Or is there a lot of gray where you're doing some kind of negotiation and discussion? I see both of you. <laughs> Apparently not a lot of clarity. The, the yes, no is overly simplistic, again, from a from a non-due diligence person. So it sounds like there's, I guess, how do you handle it then? If you, you do your investigation and you find, you know, three points of concern, but they're not necessarily you know, severe enough that they're running child labor camps or whatever, you know, it may not be a level that you can't tolerate, but you're concerned. What What are your options? I guess if, if there's a lot of gray, you work out some agreement where they'll modify their conduct or pay more or escrow. I, I, don't, I don't know. What, what, what are your approaches? I mean, I, I'd love to hear Emily's view from being on the in-house side, on the uh, from the firm side, when we these issues come up, 
we worked through them. A lot of times it's someone was struck off a list and it's very difficult to get back on. Yeah. Even if it shows that there was not really a problem. And there's a lot of lists you can be struck off. Right. You can be struck off the World Bank, you can be struck off yeah. OPIC, you can be struck, yeah. There's a lot of different ones and there's different issues around them. Even if they've been rehabilitated, but they were formally just uh, debarred, that's an issue. And then you need to work through it. And, and how we help our clients is we help evaluate these issues. We're able to, to know what other people have done in similar circumstances and ultimately advise as to where we see the risks, but ultimately it's the Emily's of the world that's going to have to <laughs> make the decision and whether they go forward or not. Because a lot of times these, these are the best people to do the job and you feel for them because they really didn't do anything wrong and right. it's tough, but I, I'd love to hear your view. Well, Emily doesn't usually get to make the decision. It's usually <laughs> the business units that make the decision, unless it's a sanctioned party. Right. And there's just no two ways around it. You know, there's, they're just sanctioned and you can't work with them. But if it's someone with reputational issues, we will, you know, sometimes strongly advise against it. But if the business wants to work with a certain client, we'll work with them to put certain parameters around our work with them. We'll tell them of every possible risk that could go wrong but it's their choice, you know, and that's more with a subcontractor or a client. If it's a joint venture partner, then I think we have a little bit more input, but at that point it gets taken up to the business unit president and our general counsel who make the ultimate decision. How common is that hurdle that someone, that a company that you really do need to work with would be the best option except for the fact that they have been you know, blacklisted. How, how common is that? It's incredibly rare. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have very few sanctioned parties come through. Because once you're on that, the, your sanctioned party, it's, it, that's not the, the tough decision. Not the that's not the tough decision. Well, certainly not with U.S. companies. Right. Yeah. It's, that's not the tough decision. Tougher decisions are the reputational ones, the ones right. that are things that happened a long time ago. Right. Um, that, how common are those? You know, I'd still say they're not incredibly common. Now, you know, because we run thousands of names, and I'd say, you know, maybe five percent. So, and that's a guesstimate. How often do you find people with common names in some of these countries, where they come up as really bad guy, and it's not? You know, no relation. That, that, oh, we I've get seen a, that lot a lot of false positives. Yeah, that, yeah that we get more false positives than um, actual reputational issues. Right. And so that's... But you still need to diligence them. Right, right. and that's a big part of my job. <laughs> so. <laughs> How do you prove what is sufficient amount of evidence? Uh, Mark Enriquez that we're talking about is not the gunrunner market <laughs> that, that everyone else is worried about. I mean, sometimes you can tell because they're in totally different countries and, like, there's no possible way, but sometimes you actually have to go and ask. And that can be delicate. So you work with the, you know, your business. I mean, usually they're going to do it for you and they're going to do it very delicately and just say, look, this, this reputational issue came up. Can you please confirm? And we've never had it where it's been a match. Great. 
We don't have that much longer for our podcast, but I'm wondering if there are other things perhaps that the panel was going to touch on. We certainly don't need to cover all of it, but that might be helpful for GCs out there that may not do this every day like you do, but occasionally run into these issues that, that might help them either identify a problem or maybe tips on where they can get help or assistance or look for answers. Sure. So we're going, so the panel, there's four of us and we're each kind of just going over our due diligence process from our own company's perspective. And we're pulling what all of our audience members are doing. Um, So it's a very interactive presentation. But I think some of the things that came out of it are that we see a lot of risk with um, ultimate owners of companies, ultimate beneficial owners, because sometimes you can't tell if a sanctioned party owns a business that you're working with. And you have to kind of balance what type of company you're working with, whether it's, you know, a low-level vendor and how much effort you put into looking at that. Um, But it could be a big risk if you don't because you could be working with a sanctioned party that you don't know about. So that's something that um, came up a lot during our discussions. Um, Levels of due diligence. All of us perform various levels of due diligence depending on the risk of our partner companies, um, you know, vendors and clients go through a lot less due diligence than agents. I've been selfish and I'm curious what advice you could give GCs regarding what you do and working with outside counsel in the process of what you do. Um, outside counsel can be really beneficial to double check that your program is sufficient to meet the laws that you're trying to abide by. So um, we like to get ours double-checked just to, like our training program, we have double-checked to ensure that it's um, sufficient to meet the UK Bribery Act. And, you know, if there's um, something going on with due diligence and you're just, you know, really not sure about allowing a party to, you know, wanting to continue to move forward with a certain party, um, outside cancel can be really helpful with that as well. Are there some tripwires or or, or, uh, some uh, checklist of things where you're like, okay, we've got A, B, and C with this. That meets my need to like, I want to go ahead and reach out to outside counsel to work with us on this one. We, we don't really have a checklist per se. It's not something that we feel comfortable making the call on ourselves. And we just want that extra bit of confirmation from someone that's outside of the organization and maybe has a different perspective than we do. Great. Joe, I know you've been that outside counsel for, you know, for some of those. Um, I welcome any tips you might have given your experience for GCs that may be facing this and again, or may not have the staff to do everything that Emily and, and the Black and Beach folks are able to do. What I, what I think is the most helpful for the general counsels, and I was in-house with a independent power producer, so I've been on, that did international projects, and um, so I've been on both sides of this. What is very helpful is for your outside counsel to know your business, know how you operate, know your, your compliance program, 
um, know your training and to be involved not just when you know a red flag shows up to be be more involved uh, generally and, and knowledgeable so that when the issues arise you can quickly assess and give good timely advice very true great that's helpful Joe, Emily, thank you so much. And, uh, and Brian, thank you for your questions as well. Um, I, I learned a lot. As you can tell, this is not my area. So, you know, I, I hope the panel, you guys will forgive me and our listeners will understand if I'm asking basic level questions. <laughs> but um, I think it's good. we got a wide range of listeners. So this has been uh, terrific. So thanks. If they have follow-up questions, why don't I give Emily and Joe, is there contact information or email or anything you want our listeners to have in case they want to learn more or another compliance uh, manager has a question for you? Sure. My email is a lot easier than my last name. It's uh, V as in Victor, I, J as in John, A, Y as in yellow, E at BV.com. And uh, mine is Joe Taroni, J O E dot T I R O N E at WBD US.com. Great. Thanks, Joe. And obviously, you can find Joe on our website, and that's where our listeners can also find all our prior episodes of the In-House Roundhouse. If you go to Womble Bond Dickinson's website or my bio page, there's a link there as well. I want to remind our listeners, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or at the Google Play Store or SoundCloud, which is hosting our episodes. And I invite you to leave a review if you've enjoyed uh, this episode. Thank you very much for listening. See you at the next station.